Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. We have been married about two weeks. We were living in North Carolina in Fayetteville. Those of you who know anything about the Army know that the nearest post is Fort Bragg, North Carolina. We were married on the 10th. I reported for duty on the 12th. We had a day and a half honeymoon. And um, ever since then, whenever I take Beverly on a trip, I, I'd say I'm making up for it. So when we were in Williamsburg last week, that was about our 15th honeymoon, I think, wasn't it? Sweetheart, yeah. And you know, I was a young second lieutenant. I was a lane grader at the ROTC summer camp that summer. I had been there the, the year before as a cadet. And I found out, I've been in the Army about two weeks, that the Chief of Staff of the United States Army was going to visit my lane as a part of his visit to Fort Bragg that week. General, four-star, Creighton Abrams. You may know of him because he is the father of the modern Army, the volunteer army. Before that, there was a conscription and a draft, and he charted a way for there to be a volunteer army. And also, the Abrams tank is named for him. So he was not just any other general. You can imagine how I felt about that. You know, I was pretty casual about it. Didn't bother me at all. A good night's sleep. I took a uniform that I'd worn two or three days, threw it up. No. I broke new starch that morning. You could cut an apple with the uh, seam on my trousers. I stayed up how long spit shining my boots that night. Beverly can tell you. Stood in awe and wonder. Fortunately, I didn't have to say much to him. I had a very brief speech telling him what we were doing on that lane. On that lane, I don't even know what we were doing that day. Now, you know, Einstein, who was not a believer was a believer, was not a believer in God. He was an agnostic, but he was a believer in the awe and the majesty of creation. And he said this, he who can no longer pause to wonder and to stand in rapt awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. And there's some truth to that. You know, I think that today we've lost to a large measure that sense of awe in our society. Uh, everybody thinks they have the truth in postmodernity. How many times have we said that? And, you know, heroes of today aren't like the heroes of yesterday. Everybody is a hero in their own mind on the Internet. Yeah. The same things happened in worship. The same things happened in church. We live in a consumer-focused society. And unfortunately, many who attend worship regularly are consumer-focused. They've lost that sense of awe and wonder, as Einstein said, wrapped awe, and they're as good as dead. You know, a Barna survey of 2020 says that 40% of regular church attenders know somebody close to them who are tired of church as usual. 38% of regular attenders at a church also attend other churches. 
Another word for that is church hopping to find the one that they really, really like that suits their interests. 38% when they leave church, they've said they don't feel challenged to change anything significant about their life. What does that tell you? I believe God loves me and I believe God loves you. So don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. My purpose this morning is not to beat you with a stick of guilt and to beat you into submission, and God doesn't do that either. But guilt has its place in the Word of God. Guilt has its place in drawing us closer to God, and yet 75% of regular attenders, according to this survey, 75% of them say that when they leave church, they feel absolutely no guilt about anything. What does that tell you? 87% leave church with some sense of disappointment because they haven't been satisfied about something in worship. What this tells me, friends, is I think that we have become too casual and too consumer-focused when we come to this moment, this holy moment of the week that we call the worship service. It reminds me when we visited a church not long ago south of here in a college town. It was a contemporary service, and that's fine. I like to worship in contemporary worship services as much as the traditional worship services, blended worship services. But what disturbed me was they had coffee out in the atrium. The wafting of the coffee aroma out there was very attractive with donuts and that sort of thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what bothered me was when they lowered the lights and people began to wander in and to stroll in late into the worship service carrying their cups of coffee and kind of lounged around to worship? Is that what we call it? You know, last week we talked about worship being, I think, essentially relational worship is responding and embracing God's invitation to do what? Do you remember what we said? Come what? Walk with me. I don't think that walk is a stroll. I don't think that walk is casual. I don't think that walk is, oh, by the way, I think that I'll just stroll into the worship service late, and if I don't like it, I'll leave early and I'll go find another place. Jesus is our friend. There's no question about that. He called his disciples friends. He said, I no longer call you slaves. I now call you friends. He is our friend. We are his co-heirs, friends and co-heirs. But friends, he's more than a friend. We should not be too familiar with our friend Jesus. You know, we are not his equal. He is the Lord of all creation. He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now, who is the governor of the universe. He is our Savior who gave his life for us. He is the Lord who is perfect. The incarnate Jesus Christ existed, not incarnate, from eternity as the Son of God. He is our friend, but He is our friend also because He's a friend of sinners who has come to redeem them from sin and death. He is our load-bearer. He carries the load that we cannot carry. We are not His equals. He says, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yoke yourself to me, we said last week, because why? You see, my burden is light, and I am humble. He bears our load. He's more 
than our equal. He is our intercessor. That's why he is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, continuing to make intercession for us because of our infirmities and because of our sin. And as Josh shared in his prayer of confession this morning, our shortcomings, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our what? Sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus. Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He is more than our equal. You know, we should not become complacent with God. Is God our friend? Well, I, I challenge you to find a passage of Scripture that says God is somebody's friend in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, I believe that He does call us to be His friends, but isn't it interesting? There are several places where it talks about being a friend of God. So, for example, Abram, he was called a friend of God. Why? Because he walked in covenant with God. He walked in covenant before God. And in 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter, he's called a friend of God. Later, in James, James says that Abram was a friend of God because he trusted God and God accounted that as what? James sounds an awful like Paul. He accounted it as righteousness. Another friend of God was Moses, who spoke to God as though face-to-face. It wasn't actually face-to-face, but as though face-to-face. He spoke to him privately in the tent of meeting outside the camp, and the other people could not come in. You see, it's a pretty rare usage of the term being a friend of God. I think that tells us something. God's not our buddy. God's not our pal. God is far, far more than that. We are not on equal footing with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we're certainly not on equal footing with Him. We need to be careful about being complacent when we come to the worship service, but as we serve Him during the week, we also need to be very careful. God is imminent. That means, of course, that He is close by. There's no question about that. Manifested in the incarnation, God made himself accessible to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He is close. He is near. And we're called to draw near to him. He made himself intimate with us in Pentecost by pouring out his spirit upon us. So there's no question he is nearby. He is close. He is imminent. But he is also transcendent. He is high and he is lifted up. We need to be careful in this thing that we do that we call worship whether it is at this gathered point this morning or whether it is when we're walking with him relationally during the week, we must be careful that our familiarity with him does not breed what? Contempt. God is still transcendent. He is supernatural creator. He is the sustainer. He is the self-existent Lord from all time and eternity. And that's not just an Old Testament concept in the I am, that is Jehovah, I am that I am. It is in the Old Testament, but it's also in the New Testament. Many times Jesus speaks of himself as the I am. And it comes to a crescendo in the book of Revelation. But also Paul tells us in Romans that he is transcendent. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For from him and through him, And in him are all things. He is transcendent. 
Isaiah reminds us of this. Now, in this whole series in worship, I am not going to preach one sermon from the book of Isaiah, the chap- chapter 6. That's where we usually begin. And the reason I'm not is because I will constantly be referring to it. And you know the story. It's when Isaiah comes into the temple. Well, what about the backstory? You see, Isaiah was well-educated. He probably attended the royal court regularly. He had friends in the high priesthood. The Talmud tells us that Isaiah was probably the cousin of King Uzziah himself. He had prophesied already in the first five chapters. He had presented the oracles of God and judgment against Judah. He was a high visibility person. He probably stood outside the temple when he did that. He may have even proclaimed this as a kind of court prophet before the king, you see. He was fearless. He was not overwhelmed by the splendor of the king's court. He was not intimidated on the stage that God put him to proclaim his oracles. He was the brave preacher who was beyond reproach. And yet, when he walks into the temple in Isaiah the sixth chapter, something happened. He encountered the Almighty God in a way that he had never encountered him before. He was thunderstruck. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord in the temple high and lifted up. And his train of his robe filled the temple. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. And two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is a fearful experience, friends. He trembled in the face of God. I love the way the puppets expressed it this morning. Yes, there should be something about coming into the presence of one who is mighty that puts goosebumps on you. This is the filter through which we look at the passage of Scripture that we have before us this morning, the 99th Psalm. We need to remember that. There is an element of fear when we come before the Lord. Would you stand in the presence of the Lord as we read His Word? The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in a pillar of cloud and kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You 
you are, were forgiving God to men, and yet you're an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This is the word of God. Let's be seated. What does it mean to tremble? What does it mean to tremble in this holy way? The ancient Hebrew word for it is ragaz. It means literally to quake. It means to quiver, to be agitated, to be perturbed. It can lead to excitement, but all of the definitions, all of the adjectives, other words that describe it really have have a negative connotation. Shaken to one's foundation, thunderstruck, it's a strong word. Most versions of Scripture translate it properly as tremble. The message, you might expect, gives a different meaning to it. (laughs) God rules, and here is what it says for tremble. On your toes, everybody. I think it loses something in the translation. You know, some say, and I think it's right, that this word means respect and reverence. There's no question about that. But there's something more disquieting about it, about this terrible awe you see of God. Look look at verse 1. It says, what happens to the earth in His presence? The earth shakes. The foundation of the temple shook before Isaiah. The Lord reigns. The beginning of this psalm, it sounds an alarm. It draws us to attention, to be alert, to stand tall in His presence, and to be aware that He is there. An awareness of something dangerous, something dreadful, We are in its presence. God's awesome presence commands trembling. You know, in the bulletin, the worship bulletin that you got in front of you, pull it out. And the first part where we talk about what? Adoration and confession. You see there in Psalm 104.32, what does it say? He looks at the earth, and it does what? It trembles. He touches the mountains, and they do what? They smoke. You see, he's the fire on the mountain. God's Shekinah is fearsome. When Israel was at Mount Horeb, God told Moses the people could come to the base, but no further, and the elders could come a little bit further. But they stood in awe, and they waited for Moses to descend back out of the cloud. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon's temple, the Shekinah of God, the glory of God filled the temple, and it was so overwhelming and powerful that the priest fled the temple. There is something trembling about the Shekinah presence of God. Why so fearful? Because of the Lord's nature. He is Jehovah, Yahweh, the I Am. He is the Elohim, that is, the God who is above all gods. This greatness that causes us trembling is found in this psalm in His name, in His great name. It's found also in His holy character, and it's found not only in the name and the character, but also in His exalted position. Look at the great name in verse number 3. The King James Version puts it this way, your great and terrible name. Great is not just big, it's the biggest of all. It's the most important of all. It's the most magnificent of all. It's the most unique name in all creation. We water that word down today, don't we? The word great. I don't know when it began, but we say everything's great. Great this, great that. It's lost its significance. 
Look at the terrible name, fearful, dreadful, and awesome. We've we've watered that down, too. Oh, that's really what? Awesome. Awesome means terrible. It means to be thunderstruck. It causes us to tremble. We find this in His name, which defines the very identity of God. The word name is used five times in this psalm. There's obviously a focus on it. And of course, the name for God is Jehovah. He is the I Am, so revered today by Jews that they do not even pronounce the name of the Lord. It's found here seven times in this psalm. And I think there are two dimensions to this. On the one side, he is Jehovah. That is the word that's translated Lord often in the Old Testament in English. And it's talk about the covenant God, the covenant Lord. You see that here. There's a kind of intimacy to that. He is the Lord who's great, where? In verse number two, in Zion, right there in Jerusalem. Uh, his people, in verse number six, they're privileged to call on his name. You see that intimacy. In verse number eight, he answers them. It's speaking about specifically the people of Israel in verse number eight. They worshiped him where? At his holy hill. There is a location there. There's this intimacy about Jehovah being the covenant God of his people, but there is also the transcendence found in Jehovah. For what does it mean? I am that what? I am. I am the eternal self-existent one. I have existed before anything else. I am the creator of all. I will be exalted, it says here, over my footstool in verse number five. In verse number one, he is above all creation, this Lord. He is the self-existent I am. He is not just a cultic God of these 12 tribes of Israel. He is a God of all gods. It is found also, this awesomeness is found not just in his name, but look at the psalm. It's found in his character. Verses 3 and 5, what does it say about him? Holy is he. That's his character. We, We affirmed it in the bulletin today, the hymn that we sang, hymn one, holy is he. Holy is he. Holy is he. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power and love and purity. You see, the magnificence of God that causes us to tremble is found not only in His name, not only in his, the, the character that is holy, but also in His exalted position. In verse number one, He is above the angels, above, above the cherubim. You know, Paul talks about being lifted up. Somebody, he says, and it was probably he, who was lifted up to the third heaven. Above this atmosphere, above the, the residence of the angels, and above that, He is high and lifted up above all creation. In verse 2 and in verse number 5, look at the bulletin again. Psalm 104, verses 24 through 28, the very beginning of that, all talks about creation that is in submission to God, creation that trembles before Him. Never forget, we should never forget that this Jehovah is also Elohim. He is creator God. He is supernatural. He is transcendent. Four times in this psalm, it refers to him as God, not just Lord. And that is the El who is the Elohim. He is the God above all gods. So how then should we revere this God that we come before in trembling because of his 
his great name because of his holy character and because of his exalted position. You see, God reveals himself in this psalm in three ways. King and judge, and that judge function was accomplished by the prophets of the Old Testament, like Moses and others, and then priest, king and prophet and priest. And there are three relevant responses that are given in this psalm as to how we should come with this trembling attitude. In verses 1 through 3, we should tremble. We should tremble before the king. In verses 4 and 5, we should honor. We should honor the judge. And then finally, he closes with what we should do with the priest in verses 6 through 8. What should we do with the priest? God the priest. We should worship him. Tremble before the king in verses 1 through 3. You see, he reigns. That is king language. He is enthroned. That is royal language. He is exalted. That is court language. Not just over the earth that we find in in verse number 1, but also over the peoples. You see, he does literally reign over the world today, over the body politic of all creation, even though many, many people do not say that he exists, many people do not believe in him, he is still ruler who is in control and sustainer of the universe, who elicits obedience and accountability, not just from those who profess to believe in him, but he will expect accountability from everyone. He commands our attention because he's king. He demands our reverence because he is king. Isaiah sees this. What does he see? He sees the Lord sitting on his what? On his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, his royal robe, you see, fills the temple. He is king. These are powerful descriptions, and they run through the psalm. The Lord is great. He has a great name. You see the king's strength and his power that loves justice. And verse number four, the strength and the power of God, Isaiah witnessed that. And the foundations and the thresholds, they did what? They trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. You see, the king, royal language, establishes equity. The king executes justice in verse number four. What is the divine king's role that I think that we should infer from this? The king protects from outside attack, he protects his people. The king enforces his law for the good order and discipline of his people. The king maintains the peace for all of his subjects. And what does that suggest that we should do then? If we're going to benefit as God's people, if we're going to be beneficiaries of his peace and his good order and his protection, then we must do what? We must submit humbly. We must come before him bowing and submitting fearfully before his lordship and authority, and obey his laws and be fully aware of the consequences of breaking them. Therefore, we must approach him with utmost reverence. Yes, he calls us to walk with him, but when we approach him, we must approach him with reverence and fear. Paul exhorts us in the New Testament and Ephesians. In in everyday worldly activities, we're to do what? We're We're to obey our masters. Well, we're not slaves in that sense, but we're to obey those that have authority over us. Servants, obey your earthly masters with what? Fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. If we are called to submit with fear and trembling to our earthly masters, how much more should we approach God with more than just reverence, but fear and trembling 
There are some theologians today that say this passage has nothing to do with fear. It does. It has to do with fear and trembling. The psalmist in Psalm 2, David says, Now now therefore, even kings show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. He is the king. We come in his awesome presence with trembling. Secondly, we should honor the judge in verses 4 through 5. God is the divine judge. Look at the language. He loves justice in verse number 4. He establishes equity, fairness, verse 4. And he executes righteousness, verse 4. And he requires us to do the same. You know Micah 6. How many times have we quoted it? Oh man, oh person, what does God require of you but to do what? And he says three things. And the very first of those is what? To do justice and to love mercy, and then to walk humbly with Him. But if we're going to walk with Him, then we should be a just people who follow His example as judge. We do this by doing what? By honoring Him as the judge. By honoring Him for who He is. When a person is sitting in a courtroom in this city, in Fort Worth, and the judge walks in, what does the bailiff do? He says, all rise, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, all rise. The judge is what? He is presiding, and he gives the name. We should have that same attitude about the person of God who is our judge. The punishment on this earth is if you keep your seat, you may be found in what? Contempt of court. You may go to jail. You may have to pay a fine. We must respect his authority, his lofty position in the distance. When a lawyer is, is, is arguing a case before the judge and he wants to approach the judge, he has to ask permission. He says, your honor, may I do what? Approach the bench. You see, there's a sense of respect for the position and the distance, and there should be for God. We should respect his law as the judge, not casual and presumptuous or disrespectful about it. Ask Yuza. Remember when Aminadab, when the ark was at his home and his sons then were, were helping? Uzzah was one of those that was helping to carry the ark, which should have been on the back of the Levites, and it wasn't. It was on the back of the oxen, and the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah did what? He reached forward to steady the ark. I hate to say it, but I probably would have done the same thing. And what happened? He was struck dead. Why? Because he broke God's holy law. In fact, he was presumptuous. David had been presumptuous by assuming that he didn't have to follow the law and put it on the back of the Levites to begin with. We must respect God's law, and we must respect the power of the judge and his duty to execute justice. You know, God's grace forgives, but he never winks at sin. God's mercy may limit punishment, but he never ignores the severe consequences of sin. You see, beyond the grace of God and beyond the mercy of God, there is a day of accounting that's coming. There is a day of judgment that is coming, and it's not popular for us to talk about that anymore. You know, people laugh, even today, laugh at the sermon by Jonathan Edwards in the title. They mock it. Sinners in the hands of what? An angry God. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath it is provoked 
and incense as much against you and against many of those who are damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of wrath you see flashing about it and ready every moment to singe that cord and to burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep you off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you for a moment. He had preached that sermon a couple of times before with no movement, but the Holy Spirit moved that day in Enfield, Massachusetts, and people began to do what? To tremble, and they repented of their sins. We must take seriously the wrath of God. But who may abide, the Messiah tells us. Well, that actually comes from, you know, Malachi, the third chapter, verse 2. But who may abide, you heard it sung this morning. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and he is like a fuller's soap. We must tremble before the king. We must honor the judge. And we, we must worship the priest. You notice these roles come together at this point in verses 6 through 8. The king demands obedience for good order and discipline. The judge executes justice and equity and fairness according to the law. And then the priest is the one that comes along then because the people need forgiveness, and he intercedes for mercy, and he dispenses forgiveness. You see, the rele relevance of these symbols that are given in these verses, Moses and Aaron were priests, Okay. Moses and Samuel were prophets. They were judges who led the people in their religious exercises. They called upon the name of the Lord. Samuel also is listed as an Ephraimite at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and we think that he's not a priest, but in fact he was. Because when you look at 1 Chronicles, the sixth chapter, his lineage is described as a Kohathite lineage. So he also is of the priesthood. The point here is you bring Aaron and Moses and Samuel together, and what they are doing as they call upon the name of the Lord is they are representing the king, they are judging, and they are bringing then the priestly intercession together all in the form of one person, and they called upon the name of the Lord. Seth's generation was the first generation to do that. Remember last week, Genesis, the fourth chapter. Abram does it then at Bethel when he builds the altar. The altar. Isaac does it in Genesis 21 at Beersheba. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it is at this point now that the psalmist shifts from that idea of relational worship, walking with God, to what? Liturgical, sacrificial worship at his altar. And that is what we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings. God's twofold answer is given then. They called upon the name of the Lord, and then he answered. And there were two answers. The second of the answers I'll do first, and then I'll cover the first. The second of the answer is he is an avenger of evil deeds. You see, this is what struck fear in Isaiah. The warning is given in Hebrews. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, it is said, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing, the author of Hebrews says. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're reminded of that this morning, once again, in the bulletin, Psalm 104, verse number 29. Look at it. You, you, you hide your face, and they are dismayed. You take away your spirit, and they expire and return to dust. You see, in the Old Testament, 
This brought what? It brought dread and fear and worry. It brought endless sacrificing of bulls and goats and lambs. It led the whole congregation of Israel to stand outside the tabernacle and to await breathlessly for the emergence of the the high priest out of the Holy of Holies. Would God this year accept the sacrifice on behalf of the people and forgive them? If he wouldn't, they had a cord wrapped around the, the ankle of the high priest so they could pull him out dead. You see, there's that sense of dread standing before the avenging God who calls us to accountability. But thanks be to God. The first of those two answers was he is a forgiving God. And this this demands the same kind of awe, an awesome joy and wonder at what the author of Hebrews calls a great salvation. You see, that is because Christ then came and fulfilled every one of these three offices. He came as prophet and priest and king. And as priest, he made the sacrifice not many times, but he made the sacrifice once for all as our high priest. And our response to him isn't just, good buddy, my friend, but I exalt you, Lord. I come to worship you, as we're commanded to do in verse number five and verse number nine here. We exalt him and we worship him because he is our king. He is the prophet that brings judgment, but he is also the priest that sacrificed himself for us. Thanks be to God for the gift of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings to those who repent and believe in his name. So how do we apply these things very briefly? Number one, worship has its place. We're at that place this morning. You notice there are local places, the footstool, the holy hill in Zion. You see, cultic worship had its place in in Jerusalem with the Jews. But we know this, worship goes beyond the place. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, a time is coming and has now come when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain, Gerizim, near Jacob's well, nor in Jerusalem, because there's going to come a time when people worship in what? Spirit and in truth. There's a place where we come together for worship, and we should continue to do that. But also, there's a place where we go to worship. And that is wherever God calls us to serve Him, to worship and to serve. Secondly, don't divide God. Don't divide God. You see, there's no division division between Jehovah and Elohim. There's no division between God and Lord. They come together in this psalm. We don't view God as judge and Jesus as our friend. You see, Jesus brings all of these things together. He is the prophet who not only proclaimed the word of God, but he will come someday as the prophetic judge. He is the priest who not only made sacrifice, but he continues to make intercession at the throne of God. He wasn't king on this earth. His kingdom is not of this world, but he is king today over all creation. Ephesians 1, he has been elevated so that he has authority over all. And you see, he does this in cooperation with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Worship should not divide God. Worship must be Trinitarian. Jesus does all of these things in cooperation with the Father and the Spirit. We have to be careful, friends, as Joe Kreider puts it, that we don't engage in Unitarian worship. There's some worship services where there is awe and splendor and great moments of silence because people feel they're coming into the presence of the magnificent God, the Father Almighty, and the focus is only on the Father. 
There are other evangelical worship services where we speak a lot about Jesus. Jesus is our Lord and Savior and friend. If we're not careful, we forget about the Father and we give no credence to the Holy Spirit. And then there are some worship services where it's all about the Spirit and it's not just Pentecostals who do that. The focus is only on the Holy Spirit. Our worship must be holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All thy works shall praise thy name, and earth and sky and sea. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. God in what? Three persons. Blessed Trinity. We come to worship, lift up the name of Jesus Christ, so that we might honor the Father through the power of the Spirit. Don't divide God. Next to last, don't be casual. Let's not be casual in our worship. Jesus is more than our shepherd. He's more than our friend. He's prophet, priest, and king. Jehovah is more than the covenant God of Israel. He's the self-existent I am, eternal. He's Elohim, God above all gods. Our spiritual sacrifices, friends, when we come to worship, shouldn't be casually strolling in with a cup of coffee. Okay? Our attitude ought to be, I have come to meet God Almighty. I'm coming into His presence to bring my spiritual sacrifice who I am, to the altar. We must never be presumptuous and casual about our worship. And then finally, it is a privilege to experience trembling. It's a privilege. Fear and trembling are good things. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs tells us, is the beginning of what? Knowledge. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9, is the beginning of wisdom. Fear and trembling are not bad things. You see, there's an exhilaration that comes out of fear and trembling. In worship, sometime, sometime, have you ever heard God's voice? Some of you have actually heard God's voice. I've never heard it, but I know some of you have. Sometimes you even hear God's voice. Sometimes you even see a vision of God. Not everybody, not all the time. But that's what can happen when we come together in worship, whether it is here or whether it is in your closet. You see, there is an exhilaration about coming before the presence of God where He challenges us then. We get the spiritual goosebumps, and He then says, walk with me into the unknown. It's a scary venture, but come with me in fear and trembling. You see, that's God's initiative, not ours. We can't manufacture those moments, no matter how hard we try. That's not the job of the preacher. That's not the job of Ben, the worship leader. That's not the job of those who put together the liturgy. We cannot manufacture those things. We cannot produce them. They are initiated by God, and they only come through the movement of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows where it wills, and we do not control the Spirit of God. But maybe, just maybe, sometime in your life and mine, we might have that sublime encounter like Isaiah had in worship, where we really encounter the living God, where He challenges us to walk with Him in a way that we've never walked with Him before. And it's transformational. It's not manufactured. And it is not something that we produce. It is produced by the driving Spirit of God. You see, God's purpose in fear and trembling is to awaken us and to prompt a response from us not to be paralyzed with fear, to be stirred and energized by the Holy Spirit to do great things for him. And so what does Isaiah do? After he has been purified by the coals that come from the angel that are put on his lips, 
And then God says, who shall go for us, for us, Trinitarian? Who shall go for us? Isaiah then said what? Here am I. Send me. Why did you come this morning? I know you didn't just stroll off the street. No. Our prayer should be that when we come, we come to meet Almighty God in fear and trembling. And when we leave, He commissions us to do great and wonderful things for Him. And in between is the fear and the trembling. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.